And, and I figure that uh, if I was to deal with all that long reading, what courage that was, um, we'd be here till Good Friday, so I'm not going to do that to your relief. Uh, um, I'm going to just deal with the first bit, uh, which is the easy bit. Uh, the tricky bit that uh, Richard described is the rest of it, and if you want any help with that, just talk to him afterwards, and he'd be, <laughs> he'd be glad to help. Would you pray with me, just for a moment? Father God, we pray through the work of your Holy Spirit, you'll make your word clear to our minds in the way that it touches our hearts and moves our wills. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when researchers from the University of California uh, did some research uh, by studying the behaviour of uh, drivers at a very busy intersection, they discovered something they thought was very interesting. What they found was that the people in expensive cars were four times more likely to cut up the other drivers and basically disregard this lovely American rule which Jamie understands, the four-way crossing, all right? We don't have those here. Um, and I'm so relieved. That's what they discovered. Uh, another of the studies, and this was part of a 10-year study on power and wealth that they did in America. And they've got a lot of it in America, so there was a lot to study. Uh, the second study was one where they, uh, one researcher tried to cross the road. And what they discovered is that when they were observed, they looked at the cars which stopped and which didn't. And they discovered that more than half the expensive cars just sped on through but almost every single one of the poor and lowly and ordinary cars stopped. Their conclusion was very simple. Their conclusion uh, was that uh, um, those with power and wealth are more likely to cheat and steal. And actually the report concluded with these words, there's something about wealth and privilege that makes you feel like you're above the law and allows you to treat others as though they don't exist. As I said, it was a 10-year study. Um, they could have just looked at the quote which said, power corrupts, because <laughs> um, we all know it. But part of that study was this, I thought, really sad. It was underlined by one of their experiments. I don't know how they did it, where they discovered that wealthy and powerful people are more likely to take sweets from children. All right? Now, I realize we have no power on wealthy people here. What does it boil down to? What it boils down to is this. Having wealth and power can have consequences. Makes people feel invincible and entitled. And isn't that actually what we've seen in the life of David? Both last week where we looked at the journey of his slippery slope into dreadful sin, uh, and it comes clear. King David had the power and the wealth, uh, but he saw what he wanted, which wasn't his, and he took it. It went wrong when she became pregnant, so he even arranged to have uh, circumstances in which her husband died. And that's the situation in which Nathan is called to confront, all right? It's an interesting job, all right? He's the king, he is powerful, he's corrupted, He's down wrong, and here comes Nathan. 
Now, of course, it wasn't that Nathan came in from the wings that he'd never been around before. Nathan had been part of David's history. Nathan was a court prophet. Court prophets had the job to speak on behalf of God into the affairs of state, and that's what he did. And from the very beginning of David's reign, Nathan had been involved. At the beginning, Nathan actually brought God's word to David about an agreement that God was making with David. You'll find it in chapter 7. God says through Nathan, tell my servant David, I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you a ruler over my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. And now I will make you your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. I will also give you rest from your enemies. So Nathan had established a relation with David. We don't know how Nathan knew of David's sin. But I guess that's what prophets do, all right? He had the inside track on that. And now he needed to act. So, so I wondered what you would have done, or I would have done, given that assignment, all right? Powerful king, messed up badly, has power over your life, and you're about to have a conversation to confront him with what he's done. What would you have done to wake up David to his sin and its consequences? Well, Nathan didn't do what I would imagine we would have all done, all right? Nathan did what the world of advertising knows. Uh, let me explain. Uh, let me explain. The, I'll catch it. You recognize... Do you recognize the photograph there from a television advertisement? Anyone, anyone put a name to that man? J.R. Hartley. Nothing to do with jam. All right. And uh, he was searching, the story is he was searching for a book he'd written. Anyone know what the book was about? Fly fishing. Do you know how long ago that, that advertisement was? Years ago. And yet here is a story that we've remembered. What about, what about this one? This is the picture of the lad with his fairy liquid bottle. Do you, do you know the story behind that one? He's, he wanted to make a, a spaceship out of the bottle and he was just aggravated because it was going to take so long before it was ready. Or perhaps more recent, this little Christmas advertisement. The man on the moon, lonely. Someone down there and the story was how could they bring brightness into his life. Or more recently, the story of Elton John's piano, all right? Advertisers understand one very simple thing. It's the power of a story. Come to that, Jesus knew it, without watching any of our television, if you understand me, all right? Someone said, who's my neighbor? Jesus told him a story. Uh, Jesus wanted people to understand what made God happy. So he told them stories about a lost son and a lost coin and a, and a lost sheep. Uh, you know that journey from Emmaus, the, the road from Emmaus, which we'll be covering soon after Easter with the resurrection story? Jesus falls in line with two people whose world has disappeared as they're believers in him and it's all fallen apart. And he simply step, falls into step and tells them the story, what we now call the Old Testament the power of the story to make it come clear to them. Strange, isn't it, that we seldom use 
or realize the power of the story, something the world out there knows, something that the prophet Nathan knew, something that Jesus knew, and we all too easily forgot. Heard an interesting story quite a while ago at a big mission conference I was privileged to be at. Someone had gone into a, 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 a completely unevangelized, unknown tribal situation with no knowledge of Jesus at all uh, to plant a church to try and make Jesus real to people. Uh, they, had, they were literate, so for several weeks he would each week print out a new story that Jesus had told. He just told the story. Didn't say who did it. Distributed it through all the homes. After about two months of this, he put another one through and said, uh, if you'd like to know more about the man who told these stories, come and I'll tell you. He was inundated with people who wanted to talk. The power of a story. It was two weeks ago, about that my wife and I, Rosie, were in a meeting where someone told the story about their little daughter, who I think her name was Grace, who was a child with disadvantages. You know, she was somewhere on a spectrum, uh, who couldn't quite make sense of life. Everything was a muddle and a confusion and didn't quite work. And she was reading the story of giraffes can't dance. Anyone know that lovely little story? The giraffe wants to dance and can't... Um, and goes off because it won't be allowed to, and then someone comes up with another kind of music, and he can dance. And Grace turned to her mummy and said, Mummy, that giraffe is me. That's me. I, I just dance differently to everyone else. So that's the power of the story. You see, but what would we do faced with David, or that walk, or any situation? I'll tell you what we do. We do sell it bang, isn't it? Do you understand what I mean? You know, we would, we, we've got this kind of approach that, that we just simply shout loudly and make statements. I, there's a lot of fuss out there on the internet at the minute about Christian street, peepers, uh, street preachers being stopped to preach. I kind of on the side of the police, <laughs> you know, because I'm trying to figure what good there is shouting at people without a story, without a relationship, all right? So, you know, we either confront, poke people in the eyes with truth, or actually, I think, just back away because we think that's what's expected of us and we're not up for that and we don't want to be part of it. You know, that, that we want to be faithful to the truth but somehow we've, we, we've struggled with how it does. And I think part of that may be that we, we even misunderstand what is meant by truth. Let me, let me tell you a story. Dave uh, was a United fan. I don't hold that against him. But on holiday in Turkey, he found a huge Turkish street market, uh, much like this one you can see on the screen. And so uh, he bought a replica... United shirt and wore it well when he took it home and paraded and it was fine. Then he washed it. All right? And not only was it then pink rather than red, it was two sizes too small. Why? Because it wasn't the real thing. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, 
a better translation of truth there is authentic. I am the way, the authentic thing. And if we could much more talk about Jesus as being authentic rather than poking people with, with facts and truth, what a difference it would make. Even on that road to Emmaus, what does Jesus do? He helps people as he walks through the Old Testament story to show that he is the real thing. So Nathan uses a very simple story. He draws on a custom of the time, well known to to David and the whole community, that that whether you were a, a poor family or a rich family, you would find a little lamb and take it into your household and almost treat it like a pet. That rich man who stole that lamb would have had one of those of his own. But sadly, this poor family had only that. And the rich man takes from the poor man. And David's anger arises with fury at that kind of injustice. Tell me who it is. Tell me who it is. And Nathan pauses and says, it's you. It's you. David had been blind to his own need and needed to find to face his own sin and forgiveness. What a story. And yet, you and I are in that story. I mean, just as grace was in the giraffe story, just as the rich young ruler was in the uh, uh, Good Samaritan story, uh, David was in Nathan's story. And I'd like to suggest that so are you and I. You see, like David, we tend to think it's someone else much more concerned about the sins of others than examining our own hearts. Much more focused on the wrongs and the shortcomings of society and those around us. I guess that's why Jesus spoke about the difference between a splinter and a plank. And I find that in my own life how easy it is to focus on the failings of others, which is always very useful because it's a way of feeling better about yourself. But that's not how it works. Um, Jesus speaks about this splinter and this plant. We've lost a sense of our own failures. We've lost a sense of our own short, shortcomings. If you're old enough, you've probably gone off to buy a new pair of shoes at some point, wearing the ones you want to replace and feeling quite good about them when you've walked into the shop. And then you've looked at the new ones and gone, oh dear, because the comparison is so clear. And when we measure our lives about in a kind of a shoe, new shoe comparison with the perfection of Jesus, which is what God looks and measures us for, we fall short. And we so fail to do that. We've lost a sense of our own failures. Of course, you may say, well, I'm I'm not a big sinner like David. You know, I've I've committed adultery. I've not done anything nasty. I've not done anything really cruel to anyone. I've not had anyone murdered. The problem is that you don't have to be that to find yourself off God's radar and distance from him. I mean, just small stuff spoils. However small our stuff is, it can spoil. Uh, Imagine a group of soldiers on a route march. They've been marching all day. They're hungry. 
exhausted, come back to camp. In the middle of the camp, there's this huge cauldron of soup boiling and ready. And then this blackbird flies over and just makes one simple deposit. <laughs> Who's going to be in front of the queue? All right? Doesn't work that way, does it? Or the bride having, you know, uh, what do they do? Chosen the dress, whatever that phrase is. Um, goes to pick up the, 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 the dress ready for her wedding and she's met with someone who says, well, we have some uh, very good news and a little bit of bad news. Okay, give it to me. Well, well, the good news is we're going to let you have this dress for only 25% of the price. Okay, and the bad news, well, there's just one small oily thumbprint just in the middle that came for the machinist. Will that be okay? Do you understand? Even little things can spoil. And when it comes to our relationship with God, those little things that we can easily ignore are those things that divide us from knowing him and being his presence. We need to realize if sin didn't matter, there would be no Easter. If sin did not matter, there would be no Easter. That's how important it is, and we need to measure it like that. Like David, we tend to think it's someone else, and we need to see ourselves in the story. And at times to hear God say, it's you. Secondly, David, like David, we fail to see what God has done. We fail to see what God has done for us. What had God done for David? Well, we read it, or had it read to us. The Lord said, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of... Judea. That's what I gave you, says God through Nathan. And then he points out, but you, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David had been given so much, which should have shaped his behavior, his sheer appreciation of all that God had done for him should have molded and changed his life and what he did. And for us, through knowing Jesus, hugely, even greater than what David had. You know, I believe that what we've been given is greater than a kingdom. We're, in, we're part of this massive kingdom. What, is, what has God done for us? I love the words of Paul, standing in front of King Agrippa, explaining the God job that he'd been given. You can find it in Acts 26. And God says to, 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 to Paul, your mission will be to open their eyes from darkness to light, to turn them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, so they may receive forgiveness of all their sins and have a place among those in heaven. That's what God has done for us through Jesus. Opened our eyes that would blind, delivered us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, given us forgiveness that we need, and given us a place and purpose in heaven. So how can we sin when we realize what great things God has done for us? And then like David... There are times when we need to face that I have sinned against the Lord. 
And, and, and you know what? We, we do the confession here at communion. And I wonder at times, it, you know, I find I get into a kind of a routine and it rolls over me and there are needs for those moments when we need to take it seriously. And that's what lands with David. This story captures David's heart when the fingers pointed and said, it is you, and he, and he realizes his response is, I have sinned against the Lord. We've no way of knowing the voice in which that was said. But we can judge by the response that comes from Nathan. It's quite clear that David was mortified with a realization that he'd hurt God and sinned against him and done such damage. And I think that happens to us. He didn't say it because he had been caught, like the kid with his hand in the cookie jar. He did it out of a real realization that he'd fallen short of God's standards, hurt God, and needed to respond. That happens to us, doesn't it? Big time and small time. And like David, I think we need to hear the words that Nathan the prophet responded to him with. These fantastic words. The Lord has taken away your sin. What that must have meant for David, because he had so much to be forgiven. And what it means for us too. And of course, we now have a much clearer picture, don't we? As to what it means to have our sin forgiven and the price that was paid. David only came out of the sacrificial system of his time, which was a, a foreshadowing of Jesus and all we're going to be celebrating in this Easter season. But we need to hear that. We have a clearer picture of what made that possible. It reminds me of a story which uh, I think is true of two brothers who lived in San Francisco. And one of them ran with gangs and... Uh, one night he was running with the gangs and took a knife and the knife hit warm flesh and the person died. And the brother rushed home, back to where he was, took off his blood-stained clothes, changed and rushed out into the night. Soon after his brother came back, he'd heard the sirens, he saw the clothes, he knew what had happened. And he put on his brother's clothes by the time the police had arrived to arrest him for the murder. He, he took the blame, was sentenced, and under the law at the time, was executed and died. Finally, the brother who'd run with everything, his conscience got the worst of it, but a better of him went to the police. He said, I need to confess I did it. And their answer was, someone has already died and paid the price. You are completely innocent and free. And I think that's a perfect, well, an almost perfect picture of what Jesus did to make our forgiveness possible. Gave his life so you and I could be clear and free. So where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? Are you still more focused on the sins of others than the reality of our the way we can easily get distanced from the God who knows us and loves us. Or you are awake to saying, I have sinned against you, Lord. Or are you needing to hear those words, the Lord has taken away your sin. Or is it that you are actually, have experienced that and you are clean and comfortable in God's presence because of what you've experienced 
of Jesus. Is that you? That phrase, you notice, is not just your sins have been forgiven, but your sins have been taken away. Isn't that amazing? They're not just there and forgiven. They have been removed. Someone has said that it's like our sin has been taken away and buried in the deepest sea and a sign's been put up saying no fishing. In other words, you're not going to go back and, and go over it again. You're clean and been dealt with. As easy as that. So that's where it is, removed. Buried in the deepest sea. No fishing. And do you know the image that comes to my mind when I think about being our sins being forgiven and truly clean and comfortable in God's presence. It's, it's kind of that, that newly bathed innocent baby, you know, which is all washed and clean and has had a bit of talc sprinkled, you know, and you can, you can smell it and it's there just nestled gently in the arms of a loving parent. Innocent, pure, clean, and comfortable. And that's what God wants every one of us to experience and know and to be sure of. All right? And you may say, isn't it presumptuous to say I know my sins are forgiven? Well, if God makes a promise, it's presumptuous to say that he doesn't keep them. The words from Nathan to David were, God has kept his promise. He promised we would do these things, and he did them. Jesus promises through Paul that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, make us clean and comfortable in his presence. And that's the invitation that I just wanted to make to you tonight. I wanted to give you a moment to just reflect on what it would mean you know, to walk through that story and come to the end of it and know that you are clean and comfortable in God's presence because of what he's done. And so I'd like to give you a chance. I'm going to come and spray this all over you in a minute. No, I'm not. Um, what I'm going to do is just, I've got a couple of these and pass them down the rows and as, uh, in a minute as Jamie comes and leads us in some worship. Um, just take a moment. If you wish, you haven't got to, but you might just want to just put a bit there and pause for a minute. And just realize the sheer privilege and delight that through what Jesus has done, we can be clean and comfortable in his presence. And it may be you're not there yet. It may be you've, you know, it sounds like a good idea and you've heard the stuff, but this could be the moment where you say, yes, I want it for myself. Yes, Lord Jesus, make me clean take my sin away. Or it might be you struggle with being sure about it and this is the moment where you're going to go, yeah, through your spirit, make it real to me, please. So, here you go. All right? You're going to be dangerous with this, aren't you? I've been wanting to do that to you all night. All right? So, Jamie, as you come and lead us, just... Father God, make this a real experience in our lives, I pray. Help us to know what it is to be clean and comfortable in your presence.
because of the, what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. And thank you for his risen life and the gift of his spirit. May he make it real to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.